All right, 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7. The theme of, of, of the, 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 both of the Samuels it ha- has to do with things of the heart. And First Samuel, we looked at lessons from the heart. And in Second Samuel, we're looking specifically at David's heart. And therefore, we're looking at a heart that's after God. And, and you know, when you think of what it means to have a heart after God, um, you, know, it, you know, if you say I love you to somebody, the idea is there, you know, there's a there, there, there's a connection there. You know, there's, there's some type of relationship there. Um, I mean, granted, you can say it to anybody, but, you know, we, we don't tend to do that. And so when we read that phrase in the Scripture reading we read tonight in Psalm 42, where it says, deep calls unto deep, you know, have, have you ever wondered what that means? I mean, it's a phrase we use. Sometimes it's in songs. And every time I, I sing it, I go, I don't know what that means. <laughs> And it gets more confusing sometimes when you, when you read it. Like verse 7 of Psalm 42 has always baffled me because like when you first read it, 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 it actually sounds like a negative, you know? He's like, you know, deep calls unto deep, your waterfalls overrun me, wave after wave hits me. And it sounds like, this doesn't sound like a good thing. It sounds like somebody's like lost at sea, you know? And yet we're singing deep calls unto deep. I'm thinking, I don't, I don't want to do that. So it's always been difficult for me to understand. Now when we sing it, you know, or we talk about it, usually, you know, it conveys this idea of the the depths of our heart calling out to God's heart. And, and, And tonight we're going to see David experience deep calling to deep. And, and what we will learn is that while it does mean our heart calling out to God's heart, there's another side to it that's oh so important. So chapter 7 of 2 Samuel, we begin in verse 1. It says, and it came to pass when the king sat in his house, and the Lord had given him rest round about from all his enemies, that the king said unto Nathan the prophet, see now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells within curtains. And Nathan said to the king, go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. David, at this point in verse 1, he has recaptured all the land that the Philistines took from Israel, the Ark of the Covenant's back in the, you know, in the tabernacle. David, as he's forged alliances with the nations around him. David has a palace in Jerusalem. I mean, things are good. But as he's sitting around and he's got peace, you know, in front of him, that life is good, he, he's thinking about things. And as he's thinking about something in particular, he says something unto Nathan the prophet. Now, this is our first meeting with this prophet. Uh, Nathan is likely a graduate from uh, Samuel's school of prophets. Um, he is thought to be the authors of the chapters in First and Second Chronicles that cover David and Solomon's reigns, because it mentions that he wrote those. So, David appears to be someone who is a regular advisor uh, in David's court uh, once David became king, because we're going to see him involved with uh, three important situations in David's life. And so I don't think, you know, it's all of a sudden, you know, you know, it's kind of like, you know, the, the flannel graph shows, you know, where all of a sudden, you know, you put a guy up there. I don't think all of a sudden, you know, David's just sitting in court and, the, you know, Nathan the prophet slides onto the screen. Hello, David. Important things are going on, and I'm here, you know. It's very likely that he was a member of David's royal court, you know. And, uh, and, and so, you know, he, he is, this is a marked difference from Saul, of course. Saul, he had no one from Samuel's school of prophets as his advisor after Samuel died. And, and of course, we know that, you know, before Samuel died, that Samuel stopped advising Saul because Saul stopped listening. And, and so, while David is not perfect by any stretch, we saw some of his flaws last Sunday night, He's trying to do things the right way. He's trying to do things the right way. And so this is why he seeks Nathan's advice about something he wants to do. He says, see now, which means please become aware of something. In other words, I've become aware of something, something that that, that I think is wrong. And he says this, he says, I dwell in a house of cedar. My palace is, it's a solid building, but the ark of God, it It dwells within curtains, the tabernacle, this mobile building uh, that was truly more like a tent. In other words, David tells Nathan, he goes, I think the Lord deserves a palace more than I do. And we need to, I think we need to fix that. I think we need to rectify. We rectified the situation with the tabernacle. I think we need to do it here too. We need to give God a temple. 
And, and Nathan's advice is, he says to the king, go. I think go for it, man, you know. He says, go. Do all that's in your heart. Um, the phrase, all that's in your heart, is emphatic in the Hebrew, which is the main focus. David, your heart's in the right spot. Your heart's for the Lord here. I, I think that's a great idea. You know, in fact, go and do are both imperative. I think you need to do this. I think this is something God's put on your, on, on your heart. And he says to him, for the Lord is with you. You know, because God had blessed David and, and the nation so wonderfully after years of struggle, you know, Nathan assumes that this desire comes from the Lord. And, and the Lord's with you, man. It's got to be the Lord. Go for it. And Nathan's going to find out here in verse 4 that uh, later that night that he was wrong about that part. <laughs> verse 4, and it came to pass that night that the word of the Lord came unto Nathan, saying, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, shall you build me a house for me to dwell in? Whereas I have not dwelt in any house since the time that I brought up the children of Israel out of Egypt, even to this day, but have walked in a tent and in a tabernacle, in all the places where I have walked with all the children of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the tribes of Israel whom I commanded to feed my people Israel, saying, why did you not build me a house of cedar? <laughs> God comes to Nathan and says, actually, Nathan, I don't want David to do this. Shall, shall he build me a temple? It's interesting because it says the word of the Lord came to Nathan, which means the advice he gave earlier were his own words. That's okay. We're human, right? We mess up sometimes. And, and it seemed like a great idea, but it wasn't the Lord. And as, <laughs> I don't know if you guys watch college football ever, but in the words of the great Lee Corso, not so fast, my friend. Nathan, you got it wrong. Now, this brings up the question, why would God not want David to build him a permanent place of worship? Well, the Scriptures give us three reasons, and uh, only two of them are mentioned here in, in chapter 7. But the first one we see in verses 6 and 7, because God says there's nothing to fix. I never asked for this. He says, go and tell my servant David, you know, are you going to do this? No. It's a question that is imp the answer is implied in the language, No. Verse 6, whereas, uh, this is a marker of contrast, in contrast to what David wants to do, hold on, this is my heart. I have not dwelt in any house, any permanent dwelling, since the time I brought up the children of Israel out of Egypt, even to this day. But I have walked, traveled in a tent and in a tabernacle. Now, the, the idea here is that, you know, the time that it was away from the tabernacle before David brought it back, either I was in the tabernacle or I was in a, another temporary dwelling place. I've never been in a building. In all the places, verse 7, wherein I have walked, traveled with all the children of Israel, spoke I a word? Did I speak a word with any of the tribes of Israel, whom I commanded to feed my people Israel, saying, why did you not build me a house of cedar? The word there for feed, it means to shepherd, to care for, and that's what Israel's leaders were supposed to be. In other words, the Lord's saying from the time of Moses, Joshua, the judges, even King Saul, did I ever, you know, chide you or complain because you didn't build me a, a physical temple, a building? God always had made it clear to Israel what He wanted them to do, and He never said anything about this. Therefore, there's nothing to rectify, nothing to fix which now leads God to his second reason. And the second reason is that God will not be outgiven by any man. And so he tells Nathan to tell David all that he's done for David and all that he's going to do. Verse 8, now therefore, so shall you say unto my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts. And by the way, isn't that a cool thought? David doesn't hear from the Lord correctly, and yet the Lord still says to him, go tell my servant David this. We're human, guys. We don't always hear from the Lord correctly. And, and so, it doesn't make us not God's servants because we don't hear perfectly all the time. Go tell my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the sheep coat, from following the sheep to be ruler over my people, over Israel. And I was with you whithersoever you went. And I have cut off all your enemies out of your sight, and I have made you a great name, like unto the name of the great men that are in the earth. <laughs> God says, you know, David, I'm going to remind you of all the things I've already done for you. And David's rise to the throne, it wasn't just improbable, it, was, it was, took a miracle. And it was God from beginning to end. 
From, from being a simple shepherd to being the king of a nation. From being a fugitive to becoming famous. From civil and external wars to now peace and prosperity. All of that was the Lord. He says, David, I, I did all of that for you. David was a godly man, and he became a good leader. But whatever David had given to the Lord was a drop in the bucket compared to what God had given to him. And God wasn't even done establishing David's kingdom. Look at verse 10. Moreover, I will. This is what I've done for you, but this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to appoint a place for my people Israel. I'm going to plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more. Neither shall the children of wickedness afflict them anymore as before time. And as since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel and have caused you to rest from all your enemies. The Lord says to David, I'm not done yet. This is all I've done for you that's crazy and probable. I'm not done giving to you. He says, I'm going to take my people, Israel, I'm going to plant them, firmly embed them in the land, that they may dwell, settle down in a place of their own and move no more. Neither shall the children of wickedness afflict them anymore like they have before time. You know, the Philistines and, and all the other enemies of Israel, they're still in the land that God promised to Israel. That land that the Philistines are in is Israel's. He promised them that land. And we're going to see in the next few chapters how God gives David a full victory over all those enemies that are in the land. There will be no one sharing the land with Israel after this. And so while this desire to build God a temple stems from a deep reverence and love for God that's in David's heart, God doesn't want David to do this out of a sense of a need to balance the scales. That's what David's saying. He's looking around and goes, this isn't fair. This isn't right. I've got this really nice place, and God's got this dumpy tent. He says, we need to, we need to even the scales or make them a nicer place. And the Lord doesn't want David to do that for that reason. God did all this for David. He did all this for his people because he just loves them. And God always wants us to relate to him that way not a legal way. Now, I said there were three reasons. The third reason is not here. You have to turn over to 1 Chronicles chapter 22 when David's explaining the importance of the temple project to Solomon, his son, who will build it. In 1 Chronicles 22, verses 7 and 8, David gives us this insight. I don't know why 2 Samuel 7 doesn't record it. He hears it at the same time. But the Lord also told David, 1 Chronicles 22, 7, and David said to Solomon, my son, as for me, it was in my mind to build a house under the name of the Lord my God. But the word of the Lord came to me saying, you have shed blood abundantly and you have made great wars. You shall not build a house under my name because you have shed much blood upon the earth in my sight. David did have blood on his hands and both as a soldier and then from his time working for the Philistines. And I, the Bible doesn't explain how, but somehow that disqualified David from the honor of building the temple. It's interesting, the temple was something that was in God's heart, but David wasn't the one that God had wanted to do it, and this was one of those other reasons. And so, even if David changed his mindset and said, well, Lord, I just want to build a temple for you because I love you, not trying to even the scales, even then the Lord wouldn't let him for this reason. Now, as you can imagine, if, if you were David and you were getting this news, that'd be kind of a bummer, you know? And so, instead of leaving things on that note, the Lord t tells David about something new he's going to do for him. He tells David that his family is going to become the dynastic line for Israel's kings. Look at the end of verse 11. It says, also, Nathan's going to relay this to David, also, the Lord tells you, declares to you, announces to you that he will make you a house. He said, David, we already have a palace. He's not talking about a palace. He's talking about a, a family, a dynasty. And when your days be fulfilled and you shall sleep with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you, which shall proceed out of your bowels. And I will establish his kingdom, and he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever, forever. <clears throat> this is so fascinating because God has made numerous promises all throughout Scripture to humanity concerning the Messiah. 
And so because of that, we know that this forever kingdom that he's talking about here, that, that, that the final kingdom is his, right? We know that. It's the Messiah's kingdom. So the only way David's kingdom can last forever is if one of his descendants is the Messiah, right? And so this chapter has what we call here the the Davidic covenant, the covenant that God makes with David that the Messiah will come through his line. You know, in Scripture, what we see is this God narrowing down the family of the Messiah. He starts with Adam and Eve. He makes that promise to Adam and Eve, particularly to Eve. He says, listen, the, you know, the, the serpent, you know, you're gonna, your, your seed is going to crush his head. He's going to bite his heel, but he's going to crush his head. That's the first promise of the Messiah that we have. But then, it, then we know it's going to be through the line of Seth, and then we know it's going to be through Noah, and then we know it's going to be through Abraham, and then we know it's going to be through Judah, and now he narrows it down to the family of David. That's where the Messiah is going to come from. Now, this does raise a question, though, because, well, what if one of my descendants blows it? What if they fail as a leader like Saul did? I mean, God ripped the kingdom away from Saul and gave it to someone else. Won't God do that with my kids, with one of my descendants, if they, they, they're like Saul? And, and God promises that his relationship with David's descendants will be different than the one he had with any other leader. Look at verse 14. He says, I will be his father, and he shall be my son. Now, there's, of course, dual meaning to this because it's a prophecy that the Messiah will be God's son, right? A relationship, of course, that can never be severed. But it also shows that God's relationship with the kings of Israel will be different than it was with Saul. Look at what it says. If he commit iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the children of men. But my mercy, that word their mercy means my loyal love, my unconditional devotion, it shall not depart away from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. And so then Nathan hears all this at night. According to all these words and according to all this vision, so did Nathan speak unto David. He goes and tells David. Now, this is a beautiful illustration here of our relationship with the Lord because the Scripture says that when we get saved, we become joint heirs with Christ, right? We become royalty. And, and God becomes our Father, right? In, in Romans 8, verses 15 through 17, those beautiful words, it says that you have not uh, received the spirit of... Uh, for you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And since we're children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. So we have been elevated to this unique relationship now where God is our Father, right? And so in the same way that when David's descendants would sin, God would discipline them, When we sin, God doesn't become our enemy like he did with Saul. He doesn't remove his love from us. Instead, as a loving father, he disciplines us, right? In Hebrews chapter uh, 12, I think, we have that text every parent knows by heart, right? No chastening for the present time is is joyful, son, right? You know, it's hard but you need it. I do this because I love you, right? My dad always told me, this hurts me more than I hurt you. And I'm like, no, it doesn't. There's no way. Hebrews 12, 6, for whom the Lord loves, he chastens. He scourges every son whom he receives. And if you endure that correction, that discipline, that chastening, then God deals with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the father does not chasten? For if you, but if he be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then you're illegitimate. You're not really family, not sons. So, you know, this concept, this idea of God's discipline in our lives, you know, that's evidence that we belong to Him, that we're His son, we're His daughter. And that's what a loving father does. He disciplines. And so, you know, when you blow it, you know, you don't you don't have to be afraid of God, you know. You don't, you don't have to, to think, well, he doesn't love me anymore. No, you need, to, you need to go to him and find grace and help and mercy in time of need. That's why he disciplines us, to teach us and to bring us where, back to where we need to be. Now, this is all a tremendous gift of grace on top of 
all that God's already done for David. I mean, for him to bring him from a shepherd following sheep to now he's leading people, the entire nation of Israel, that's an amazing thing. All that God has done was grace, but now on top of this, God says that your line's going to be the line of the Messiah. Your line's going to be a dynastic, you know, uh, a line. And and I'm going to treat your line differently than I treated Saul even. That's awesome. And so when David hears this, when we don't get the relaying of it from Nathan to David, it just says he did it, he told him. But when David hears about this from Nathan, it hits him in the deepest place of his heart. He is absolutely blown away by God's goodness, and so he gets alone with the Lord to pour out the depths of his heart. And so this, this text has become one of my favorite in all the Bible when I was studying this this week, and I thought, this is so cool. This is like if somebody were to all of a sudden like have a like have reality TV show, it'd be like reality TV show with you, you know, in your private prayer time that nobody sees, not even your spouse, you know, where it's just you and Jesus, and you're just bearing your heart out to him. That's what's going on with David here. It says in verse 18, then went David in and sat before the Lord. Now, this could be a private room. It could be the tabernacle. Either way, uh, the word sat before, it means remained facing. So wherever David went, remember, he's not a priest, so he can't go into the Holy of Holies. He can't even go into the holy place. Wherever he is, he remains facing wherever the Holy of Holies is for quite some time. He's just, he's just there. And during that time, he prays. And he starts his prayer like this. He said, who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me hitherto? You brought me to this place. You know, there's a part of me that wonders if David wrote Psalm 8 after this. You know, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you should think of him? When I consider the stars and the heavens, you know, and how vast they are, and I think, Lord, how could you think on me? Maybe, I don't know. But David's in this mindset right now. You know, all too frequently I hear people say, God isn't good, God isn't fair. If he was, he would have never let this happen to me. And there may be times you've felt that way. Maybe even times you've said those things. But whenever I, I say or think that, it shows that, I'm not actually in a place to say, who am I when God blesses me? I mean, that should be the response, you know? Who am I? And we saw last week, David's not immune to that temptation. He succumbed to it in chapter 6 when God killed Uzzah for touching the ark, right? God, you're not good. He goes angry at the Lord. But this chapter shows that his repentance in chapter 6 was real, that David knows he's not the good one, that the Lord's the good one. And so he says, who am I? And what is my family, my house, that you have brought me this far? Uh, Lord, you just, you reminded me of everything you've done. You reminded me of who I used to be and how far I've come and how, you, how you're the one that did it all. And he's like, David, maybe for the first time, I think grasps just how gracious God has been to bring him to the the status report we read in verse 1 of chapter 7. And it came to pass when the king sat in his house and the Lord had given him rest round about from all of his enemies. I think maybe for the first time David grasps just how gracious God has been to him to do all this. That despite David's faithfulness through the hard trials, he still didn't deserve any of this. I think in this moment when Nathan relays the story. I'm sure that as he first hears, no, David, you're not going to build me a temple. He's probably bummed. But then as the Lord says, let me, let me tell you what I've done for you. Let me tell you what I'm going to keep doing for you. And let me tell you something really new and cool that I'm going to do for you. I think as David is hearing this from Nathan, I think his understanding of God's goodness, God's love, and God's grace just goes boom. <laughs> I just think he's blown away. And I think what David realizes when it all hits him I think he realizes I could never balance those scales. There's nothing I could ever do to balance those scales. I could never even, never even come close to balancing those scales. And yet while he's, he's, he's trying to wrestle with all that, he realizes just how small of a gift everything God's already done for him is compared to this new promise from God. Look at verse 19, and, and this was yet a small thing in your sight. Everything you've already done for me and what you say you're gonna do for my reign, 
That's insignificant in your sight, O Lord God. What is a one king's reign compared to God's vast, eternal, all-powerful perspective? It's a blip. It's a blip on the radar. And yet David says, even though that's the case, you have spoken also of your servant's house, his family, for a great while to come. David realizes that somehow God has, has stretched his gift to David to encompass God's vast, eternal, all-powerful perspective. And so he asks a question. He says, and is this the manner of man, O Lord God? The word there, man, is an interesting word. It's the word Torah, which is where we get our word law from. It means the customary way of doing things, the way things are supposed to be. It's almost like David says, Lord, is this, is this how you are with everybody? Is this, is this what you're really like at your core, that you're just this good? <laughs> There's a sense in this moment that David experiences something close, I think, to what Moses did when he said, Lord, show me your glory, and then God hit him in the cleft of the rock. And he passed by, and he declared his name, and then he took his hand off, and and Moses saw his afterglow. I think think there's a very similar experience for David here, where he is just, he's understanding God in a way that he's, he's never before. You know, if we look back to Psalm 42, which has an interesting uh, title to it. It it mentions, it's a song for the sons of Korah, which means we don't know who wrote it. It was, someone wrote it, and then they gave it to the chief musician for this specific worship group to play. Whoever wrote this song said, oh man, the the singers or the guitar players, whatever, man, they, they can nail this song. Let's give it to the sons of Korah. So we don't know who wrote it, you know? We don't know, but I'm positive it's David. And what's interesting is it's a mashkel, which means a contemplation. It's something that's supposed to make you think. The psalm starts in Psalm 42, as the deer pants after the water brook, so pants my soul after you, O God. So here the writer, whoever it is, is saying, like a deer is looking for water, looking for some type of sustenance, you know, some type of refreshment, that's how my soul longs after you. And then he talks about all this trouble he's in, you know. Many people believe that David wrote this song, gave it to the sons of Korah, as he and that worship team were fleeing from Absalom when Absalom uh, took over the kingdom. And that they were leaving behind the temple, uh, the tabernacle, leaving behind the ark of God, leaving behind their lives, leaving behind their service, their worship, all that kind of stuff. When the question gets asked later on in the psalm, when shall I appear before God? When do I get to go back? I don't know. Whoever it is and whatever they're referring to, they're in a bad spot. God, I need you. I need sustenance. I need refreshment. I need you. I need you. And when we get down to verse 7, he says those words, deep calls unto deep. At the noise of your, King James says water spouts, it just means water falls. And then he says, all your waves and your billows are gone over me. And where it can get confusing is the old King James says, yet the Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime. And I would read that, and I think, okay, so deep onto deep is bad, yet God's loving kindness will come upon me in the daytime. Problem is, if you have an old King James Bible, you'll notice that the word yet is in italics. Fortunately, in my Bible, the italics don't really stick out, and so I always assumed it was there. There's no yet there. David says, deep calls unto deep at the noise of your waterfalls. All your waves and your billows are gone over me. The Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime, and in the night his song shall be with me and my prayer unto the God of my life. If we go to verse 1, we see David, you know, whoever's writing this is saying, you know, Lord, I, I need, I'm thirsty, I need. And then deep calls unto deep at the noise. I, I, I hear it. I hear the water. I hear the waterfalls. And then when I go, it's not just what I need, it's it's more than I can handle. 
They're waves, they just come over me. I, your love is so big, it's so wide. And so he, he declares at the end, because God's love is so big, he says, the Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime, and in the night his song shall be with me, and my prayer unto the God of my life. The writer believes God will answer his cry, will slake the thirst of his panting soul. And so here's the question, how does God do that? How does God get that to him? Because deep is calling on deep. He says, I'm thirsty. And then something from the depths of God's heart calls out to David's heart. I want to read a quote to you from James Smith. He said this, the deep of man's need calls into the deep of God's fullness. That's what we saw in verse 1. As the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs after you. The deep of man's need calls into the deep of God's fullness. And the deep of God's fullness calls unto the deep of man's need. Between our, our emptiness and his all-sufficiency, there is a great gulf. All these verses between verse 1 and verse 7. And nothing can fully meet the depth of our need but the depth of his almighty fullness. When the writer is saying deep calls unto deep, he's talking about God's heart. The deepest love that's in God's heart, all the depths of God's love is just calling out to David. That's how he hears the noise, the writer, that's how I hear the noise of the waterfalls because God's calling out to him. And then when he comes, it's not just enough to slake his thirst, it's more than he can handle. God's love is more than he can handle. David, as he's here and, 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 and seeing God's love in this great capacity, understanding God's goodness in this greater capacity, he's overwhelmed. You know, his understanding of God's love is like waves that wash over him and even threaten to drown him. He can't take it all in. And so in verse 20, back in 2 Samuel 7, he says, and what, what can David say more unto you? Like, I mean, how does thank you suffice? Okay, I'll say it twice. Thank you, thank you. How does that suffice? He says, what more can I say unto you? And here's the key. For you, Lord God, you know your servant. You know everything I've thought, everything I've said, everything I've done, every sin, every failure. You know I don't deserve this, and yet you still do it? For your word's sake, and according to your own heart, have you done all these great things to make your servant know them? That verse is so important. It's not like the Lord said, David, you're a good guy. I'm going to do something good for you. No. This all originated from God's heart. It all originated from God's heart. He says, you're doing this because for your word's sake, you made a promise. You didn't do it because I deserved it. You're doing this according to your own heart. It originated from you, your love for me, not anything I did to win your favor. And when you're confronted with understanding a love that is so undeserved, so freely given, so unreal, and yet so very real, no words suffice. You either accept it and you give all the glory to God, <laughs> or you say things like our beloved brother, brother Peter did in Luke 5.8. In Luke 5.8, Jesus, remember he told Peter, drop your nets over this side, and he's like, Lord, I've been fishing all night. I'm, I'm a fisherman, you're the prophet, I do my thing, you do yours. And of course, nevertheless, if you tell me to do it, I'll do it. So he lowers the net, catches a ton of fish, and the Bible says Peter falls before the Lord, and he says, depart from me, for I'm a sinful man. When you're confronted with that kind of love, that I mean, there's only one or two ways to go. No, I don't deserve it. I can't have it. Then you reject it. Or, or like David, you go, I don't know what else to say. You're just good. You're just awesome. You give him all the glory and you accept it. I know there are probably some of you here tonight, maybe even many of you who've done what Peter did. I've done it. You push God away. 
That love can't be for you, and you just can't bring yourself to accept it. And you keep trying to earn God's favor, keep trying to earn his love, earn his blessing, and get on that treadmill again. Oh, no, no, I'll be a good, I'll be a good son, Lord. I'll be, I'll be a son you can be proud of. When the whole time the Lord's just saying, you're my son already. I just love you. Here's the good news. <laughs> David wasn't just a bad husband like we learned in chapter 6. He's a bad dad. He's a bad friend. He was a murderer, an adulterer, and many other wicked labels we could give him at points in his life. And so may I encourage you tonight, instead of continuing Peter's tradition, <laughs> take a different approach. Accept God's love. Accept his grace by faith. And give all the glory to God like David did. David says in verse 22, wherefore, because this all originated from you, God. Wherefore, you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, neither is there any God beside you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. You are great. The word means exalted. You have the highest status. And then I love what David says. He goes, there is none like you, neither is there any God beside you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. In other words, David says, everything, everything you told us about yourself, it's all true. I've heard it my whole life. It's all true. From the youngest of ages, we tell our kids, we teach our kids, Jesus loves you, man. Jesus loves you. Well, there's, we all have to come to that place in our life, whether you learn it when you're two or you learn it when you're 42. You have to come to a place where you go, I believe it's true. I'm convinced it's true. And I think we go through moments in our lives where we understand it in a greater capacity. Paul the Apostle prayed, you know, for the Ephesian Christians. He says, you know, my prayer for you is that you might, you know, well, let me read it to you. I'm just end up doing the height depth thing. There's more words to it than that. Uh, Ephesians 3, 16, his prayer is that, that, that God would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might by, the, by his spirit in the inner man and that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith that you, being rooted and grounded in love, might be able to comprehend with all saints, and so not just them, all believers, that we would all be able to comprehend what is the breadth and length and depth and height and to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. I'm sure we can all have, think of moments in our lives when we understood God's love in a, a greater capacity, and it just blew us away, and we, we just said, okay, it's true. It's just more true than I ever thought it was. And when I examined David's life, in particular David's failures, and the horrible situations that David found himself in because of those failures, I find it hard to understand how he kept going. And so I can only believe it's because of what he learned here. That no matter what he did, no matter what happened to him, David was, I believe, absolutely convinced that God loved him. I think he was absolutely convinced that there was always a path back to the Lord that against all human logic, emotion, and experience, that God was exactly who he claimed to be. David declares that this isn't just true because of how God is towards him. David in verse 23 says this is true because it's how God is towards all his people. Verse 23, and what one nation in the earth is like your people, even like Israel, whom God went to redeem for a people to himself and to make a name, him a name, and to do for you great things and awesome things for your land before your people, which you redeemed to you from Egypt and from the nations and their gods. He's talking about his people, Israel. David realizes in this confirmation of, of, of God's love for him that, that God isn't just making this eternal commitment to him, his dynastic line, his descendants. He, he understands that God is affirming his eternal commitment to Israel. That despite all their sin and all their stubbornness, they were indeed his people and always will be. And that's why Paul can say in Romans eleven twenty nine 29 that the gifts and the calling of God are without repentance. 
He can say that God isn't and never will be done with the nation of Israel. One of the biggest disservices I think Christians do when they say that the church is Israel is they do a great disservice to God's love and to God's grace. Because if he can cast them off, then why can't he just cast us off? I have major problems with that doctrine because of the ramifications if you hold that doctrine. Because then God, he isn't faithful to his promises. And there isn't a path back for everyone. And he isn't as gracious and as loving as he claims to be. Now, having given God the glory that he deserves for such gracious love, David tells the Lord that he accepts his gift. Verse 24, he explains why he thinks this about Israel. For you have confirmed to, your, to yourself your people Israel to be a people unto you forever, and you, Lord, are become their God. So verse 25, now David tells the Lord that he accepts this, this gracious gift. He says, and now, O Lord God, the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, Lord, establish it forever. Set it up for eternity. I'm all in on this plan. And do as you have said. And let your name be magnified forever, saying the Lord of hosts is God over Israel. David is not all in on this plan just because it's good for his family. He, his desire is that God would work in his family in such a way, his descendants in such a way, that people would see God as greater. That's what magnified means. It means in, to be in a state of high status among others. He says, Lord, let your name be magnified forever, that people will say, when they see your hand upon my descendants, upon the the nation of Israel and the kingdom that you've built, let them say, the Lord of hosts is the God of Israel. That Lord of hosts is a fascinating phrase. It's Jehovah of Sabaoth, not Sabbath, but Sabaoth. And it's a phrase that means the becoming one, the almighty one who rules everything. Lord, do what you say you're going to do so people look at you and they, they hold you in high esteem and they, they look at what you've done for your people and they say, man, the best person in the universe is their God. <laughs> the biggest person in the universe is their God. For you, and let the house of your servant David be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, you have revealed to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, has your servant found in his heart to pray this prayer unto you? And I love verse 28 and 29. He says, Lord, I accept this, this gracious gift. And, and then he, 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 he declares, you know, this is going to sound crazy, you know. I mean, that's, that's not something you probably walk in and say, hey, you know, how was your day? Well, it was great. I spent some time with the Lord. He told me that, you know, one of my descendants is going to be the Messiah. Good news, honey, right? I mean, it sounds crazy. But David, in these last two verses, he, he confesses his trust that God's able to do what he promises. He says, and now, O Lord God, you are that God, that, the, the Lord of Sabaoth, the one who rules heaven and, and, and earth, and therefore you can accomplish what you, what you promised to do. You, Lord God, you are that God, and your words be true, reliable, trustworthy, faithful, and you have promised this goodness unto your servant. Therefore now, let it please you to bless the house of your servant, that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord, have spoken it. Has any dynastic line in history lasted forever? Nope. But David's will when Jesus reigns. Because God is capable and God is faithful. God is the perfect promise keeper because he never lies and he's always able to do what he promises he'll do. I had a great uncle who was an alcoholic. He's home with the Lord now. But before he got right with the Lord, he lived with my family for a period of time. And, and we were kids, you know. Hey, your great uncle's there. I mean, everybody loves their great uncle, right? You know? 
And he would always promise things, always promise things. Hey, I'm going to get you that game you're always talking about when you see the commercial on the TV, you know? He would do this all the time. And, and of course, you know, mom and dad's heart would break because he would never fulfill any of those promises. God's not like that. He is the perfect promise keeper because he's good and he's powerful. You know, he can do what he says he'll do. And because he's faithful, he will do it. So David closes his prayer with saying, and with your blessing, (laughs) let the house of your servant be blessed forever. Lord, I want your blessing. That's the blessing that we want most of all. Amen? Amen. So, where does this leave us? I have learned in my life that very often I'll hear truths from from the Lord, from, from God's Word, and I don't always mix them with faith. So I'll hear something, and I'll see how God is this way towards someone in the Scripture, but there are times that I think, yeah, but that's not for me. You know, it's not for me because well, I failed here, or, or you know, I, I, God could, you know, I, I, I could never, I, I just can't happen, you know. And that always keeps us from blessing when we do that. It always keeps us walking in circles in a desert, right? <laughs> Lord, is, is, go up and take the land. No, there's giants and walled cities, and the people outnumber us. Yeah, but I, I, I gave it to you. Go do it. I'm God. Ah, I think we're not going to do it. circles. You know, I love after Peter tried to push Jesus away, the Lord didn't go away. The Lord just kept telling him how much he loved him. And he said, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of what? Don't be afraid that this isn't for you. You just saw me do something awesome for you, Peter. You've been fishing all night and got nothing, and now you got your boats can't even handle all the all the provision I just gave you. Don't be afraid. I want to bless you, and I'm going to do far more than you think I, I'm even capable of. So don't be afraid. I'm going to make you fishers of men, Peter. I've got way more in store for you than filling a boat with fish. I'm more good than you'll ever imagine me to be. I love you way more than you ever think I do. The Lord isn't scared off by our struggles. He tells us to not be afraid. And he says he has even more good things in store for us. The only thing, he says, Lord, the writer, whoever wrote Psalm 42, has the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs after thee. The only thing that can meet the deepest need I have is a painful but glorious truth. I will never deserve God's love. Never. Confronting that deep emptiness in our heart can be so painful because our pride says, no, I can do better. I can be worth it. But when we confront that emptiness, a hole so deep that we can never fill, we ask God in His grace to pour into it from the depth of His unending heart, His unending love. That's when we begin to experience that, those waves. Too much. Too much. You know, David, at another point, he said, when I consider the heavens, the work of your hands, he said, Lord, who am I? that you would think on me. That's where he came to that place. That's when we begin to taste and see that the Lord is good and that he is better than anything else I can do to try to earn his love. And when you can be in that place, no matter how thirsty you are, no matter how rough things are, his love can sustain you and you can push through. Let's all stand I was at Bible college one year, and
and uh, we had a huge, huge snow. And uh, digging the car out, and I don't deal well, dealt very much less well back then with stressful situations. And me and Beverly were engaged at the time, and I was just a complete jerk. I remember finally getting into the car and turning the car on. And and she came out and she's like, hey, you all right? And I was like, no. I said, I can't believe I'm capable of acting like that toward you. How could God ever use me? I remember she just ministered God's love to me, spoke the truth to me. And she left. And I remember sitting in that car thinking, I've only got two ways to go now. Either I'm going to believe what she said, and I'm going to get back out and we're going to go back to school, or I'm going to, I'm going to get a plane and go home, and I'm done. Don't get on a plane. <laughs> he loves you so much. Nothing you can do ever change that. So, Lord, thanks so much for giving us this inside look into David's personal experience with you where he, he just got it in a way he never had before. So Lord, that we can see what you're like and what you want to do for us. Lord, it, it does seem at times too good to be true that we have a home in heaven, that we're joint heirs with Christ, that you love us and you want to bless our lives. Lord, tonight, in faith, we say, Lord, we believe you are everything you have told us about yourself. We believe it's true. And we don't want to push you away. We say tonight, Lord, we receive that love, that grace, and we just want to tell you how great you are. So, Lord, for everyone tonight who may be struggling with your love, I pray that you would Bless them, Lord. Draw them close with those bands of loving kindness. Speak to them, just like you did to Peter. Say, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I got even better things for you. Trust me. Lord, help us all to trust you even more tonight. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.